backroom politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Again, from a split-screen edition of the show, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining you from the great Sunshine State. It is America's Space Coast in the great state of Florida. Joining me, as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs who served at last count four presidents. He is... The longtime Washington insider, longtime Senate staffer, the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Justin. Joining me as he does every Tuesday when he can, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Hello, Justin. How are you? And doing great. Uh, So we have got so much to talk about. I mean, we literally cannot squeeze all the news that we have to cover in two hours of radio. Hopefully we'll get a couple of Democrats on here. Hopefully we'll get Dan and Sharmila to chime in at some point, but there is a lot going on. Uh, Obviously the the first thing I want to touch on today is um, I I want to touch a little bit on the, on just a remarkable sight that happened this past Saturday. Uh, For those who don't know, or who listened to us overseas. Actually, you probably would have seen it overseas as well. I know it got a lot of international coverage. Uh, On Saturday, what appears to be anywhere from about 200,000 to about 500,000, the numbers are still coming in, but a large group of youth marched on Washington in support of gun legislation, gun safety rules, and in support of the movement that was started by the students and the victims of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in uh, Broward County, Florida, that happened about a month and a half ago. It was just a, it was a peaceful, it was a truly energetic. Uh, The word I've gotten, I was not there, but the word I got from people that were there say that it was, it, it, it had an energy behind it that they haven't seen in decades in Washington. Uh, some are saying it could be the largest march on Washington that we've seen in several decades. It is absolutely just, it, it was just an absolutely amazing sight. Uh, and it was led by, run by, and advocated by America's youth. Um, there were celebrities, celebrities, uh, didn't take center stage. Uh, there were a couple of them, you know, a couple of celebrities sang during the, uh, about half day protest. Uh, but it was, it was truly a remarkable sight of youth in action on something that they came together on that being stopping deadly shootings inside schools. Let's go to the roundtable real quick. Uh, Admiral Ken, you, you know, when, when we see the damage that we, see, that we saw at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and then we go back to the senseless violence that we saw at a church in Charleston, and then we go back to Sandy Hook, and we go all the way back to Columbine, uh, we've seen calls for gun legislation before, but this one seems different. 
why do you think that there's a sense of activism that's just being brought up by these kids and why Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Um, I guess the easy answer to that question for me is not a very good answer is I don't know. Um, in, in listening to um, uh, the one or two associates that are um, much further to the right on these things than I am, uh, even some folks that we happen to sit down next to at dinner uh, Sunday night uh, and listening to uh, Rush Limbaugh yesterday afternoon, um, they would have you believe that these kids are being used as pawns by the radical left. I don't believe that. Um, I think that um, maybe, just maybe, um, the young folks that were the survivors of the shooting uh, down in um, uh, uh, Deerfield Beach, Florida, um, basically came to the realization, you know what? Our parents and our grandparents and our uncles and our aunts haven't done anything to protect us. Maybe we need to do this ourselves. And if that's where it's coming from, i got to tell you, I'm okay with that. Uh, as I remarked to um, the, the, the couple that sat next to us at dinner on Sunday night who felt that this was a, an, an all-at-staged uh, event, um, I said, listen, you know, with the level of voter apathy that we have in this country, I think it, it's a good thing that we're seeing this many young people that close to voting age basically realizing that they truly do have a voice in how they're governed, and I applaud their efforts. Uh, I may not agree with some of the commentary that some of the people made, but you know what? I don't agree with some of the commentary that we make on the show. So that's okay. I think it's important that they're starting to realize that they've got a, a place in, uh, in society, and, and, they, they do, and they want to take some responsibility in, uh, in, uh, in, in taking that place. I'm good with it. Uh, Alan Moore, are we seeing what could be a, 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 a new stage in political activism? I mean, has this sparked America's youth? to stop the apathy, to get involved? And if it has, again, why Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Why is this incident different and getting 1.7 million people out to march worldwide on the same day for the same cause? What makes Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School different than Sandy Hook, Columbine, and the rest of the mass shootings that we've seen, the senseless acts of violence? Yeah, the the only thing I can the, the thing that I'm drawn to is that that um, that we were prepared for a tipping point to occur. Um, most of the kids who were involved in in uh, certainly in the planning and execution um, uh, of this of this march um, weren't even alive when when Columbine occurred. Having said that, they've they've grown up in in their entire school lives, doing special drills um, to prepare for active shooters. It doesn't happen in every school, but all over the country for years, that kind of of, of preparation has gone on. And with each ensuing incident, there's this this it's just kind of this growing swelling concern that surely we can do something. And when 
when the the opportunity for something ends up being nothing and accusations that people who want to do something are simply trying to take guns away, that narrative is offensive to not just older folks, but to younger people who are kind of being in, we're, we're sort of encouraged, okay, guys, it's going to be your country, step up. And I think this was building sort of quietly. And then along comes a high school shooting in the state of Florida, where we had the Pulse nightclub shooting um, less than a year before and still struggling with the aftermath of that. And then the Las Vegas shooting um, and, and it hits a high school. I think we were kind of ready for incident and event. And this appears to be it. We, it's hard to know where this all goes. Um, but in Florida itself, against the odds, some laws were passed in the aftermath of this shooting that right. people have been seeking for a long time. But, but again, Alan, let me, let me just, go back to the focus. Let, well, let me hold on for a second. Let me go back to the focus on this and, and, and just ask is, you know, is it a matter of, I mean, is this a matter of right, you know, right people, right time and that the, that the stars just all aligned or do, did and I, and I heard this from a, a couple of of, of um, Democratic friends of mine here in Florida uh, who were involved in politics down South Florida. They they said that with all of the venom coming out of Washington D.C. and all of the venom that came out of the 2016 uh, presidential campaign, that that all of that combined with the tragic shooting at the high school. These kids just said, okay, the adults can't handle it. We're going to have to handle it. Do you believe that there's truth in that? You know, I, 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 I feel when we, when we put the construct as the adults can't handle it, we've got to handle it. I'm not sure it's the adults can't handle it. I'm guessing a lot of these kids are getting a lot of encouragement from their parents as opposed to pushback. Having said that, I think the parents are saying, it's your turn. Step out. How can I help you? Um, I'm guessing it's less a frustration with, you know, sort of their parents who can't fix it, but more with the system that for whatever set of reasons, whether it's in, in their mind, big money, um, uh, uh, which of course is the big accusation with regard to the NRA, big money buys politicians, when, it, when are voters going to step up and say enough? It, and it, it doesn't matter that 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 may not be a highly sophisticated way of looking at it. What matters is they have the passion uh, to take the time to go out, to go to meetings, to go again and again and again and again, because usually there's a immediate response to some horror and the anger lingers after a few days or weeks, and then it's sort of back to normal. That didn't happen this time. Um, right. And that's what one has to, to, to pay attention to as to, wow, and there's nothing like success to breed more success. When, right. when they're on TV, when they have 
so when they clearly helped create change in the state of Florida legislature, um, right, and that empowers them, that encourages them, and let's go to Washington, and they get hundreds of thousands of people um, uh, to to show up in Washington, and huge numbers all over the country and in other in other cities in the world. That's pretty so, amazing. Ken, let me. Admiral Ken, let me go to you. You know, going off of Alan's point is it's not so much that the adults can't handle it. Is, is there an advantage to having this uh, adamant and vocal a crowd of youth, active youth, getting involved in how they're governed and pushing this? Uh, it, it, it apparently has worked in Tallahassee, where Governor Rick Scott is taking a lot of heat from the NRA and NRA supporters for signing into legislation, some common sense gun legislation in the Sunshine State. Uh, is there some is there some logic in having these kids be the voice to make change? Yeah, I think so. Um, if you go back to um, the um, the town hall that was held in Florida a few, uh, maybe a couple of weeks after the shooting, uh, when some of the politicians got up on stage uh, and got shouted down. Uh, I personally would pay good money. Uh, it would be must-see TV to see the likes of Wayne LaPierre or um, – uh, I'm drawing, trying to come up with the name of the congressman from uh, there's a, there a southern state congressman who was just absolutely over the moon about the fact that they're going to come and take our guns away, getting to a shouting match with an 18 year old. He's going to look like an idiot and the kids are going to look like heroes. And they they, are, they have the advantage of, uh, of, of a youthful uh, ideological look at the world that's not tainted by money or prestige, right. or find a, a solvent electorate. So, yeah, I think they're, they're on to something if they can keep it up. And I'll go back to something I said on this air some number of weeks ago when we were talking about this. You're right, right Justin, that in previous episodes, you know, the, the, the momentum uh, to do something loses airspeed and altitude very, very quickly. Uh, and, it, you know, and I made the comment that the only way you're really going to be able to get something changed is if you come up with a message that is better than the one that the NRA and unfortunately the, a, a large number of the members of the Republican Party are coming up with. Well, I think these kids right. have found that message, and they, I think they're a good forum for it. Right. Hey, I want to get the, I want to get some perspective on on somebody that was there. Uh, our uh, associate producer uh, this summer is uh, Audrey Howerton. You've heard her on the radio before. She runs our our White House administration, Deadpool. Um, but she was actually at the march this past weekend and we as old people can talk about this all day long i want to get the perspective of of somebody of that generation who participated in the march and felt the vibe audrey thanks for joining us on air hi everybody hey audrey um audrey wanted to come to you because i wanted to get your sense of first of all tell us what it was like from your perspective, being down on Pennsylvania Avenue in the middle of the march, kind of give us a sense of what you saw, what you felt, what you heard. It was honestly a sight like no other. Um, I had the ability to go to the second women's march um, this past January down by the Lincoln Memorial, and this was, it felt 10 times larger, and the feeling was heavier and more focused and more determined and that could be because it's the first 
of potentially many marches to come. But I ended up being down, I found out after looking at pictures, towards the end of where everyone was standing. And it really felt like no matter where you were, you were in the middle of it. Audrey, did did you get a sense of, because at least from what I saw on television and what I've gotten from other people that were there, uh, there wasn't tension. There wasn't any sort of uh, tense energy. It was just all positive. It was all focused, and it was all focused on one mission, and that is to stop gun violence in schools. Is there some accuracy to that? There were, there is in the sense that there were no counter protesters. Everyone was there to respect the space and get out their version, I would say, of what they view a change to gun legislation could be. Going to the market. Did you experience, did no, you experience, Audrey, let me just stop you right there. Did you experience any of the counter protesters? How many of them were there, and not numbers, but was there a good amount of counter protesters? I did not see specifically counter protesters to the March for Our Lives. There were protesters against, you know, people marching for our lives were against the NRA. And then you had some just for, you know, a a ban on assault rifles. So there wasn't a clear consensus of what this gun legislation would look like, but there was nobody there that I saw in the middle of it saying we want essentially more guns what you're marching for is irrelevant right do do you do you get the sense that those in attendance at least there in washington and those around you uh for example those of you who might be around campus uh on on the au uh campus are, are you getting the sense that this is a new wave and not just uh, you know, short attention span syndrome where it's the cool thing now and it's got so much attention and then six months away it'll die off? I do. It's sparking a lot more conversation than I've seen in the past. And you had asked earlier, Justin, why now? Why, why this school? And I think it's because they can. And in high school you learn, you're starting to learn how civic engagement works, how the U.S. government functions. And it's frustrating, at least I found as a college student, because you feel like you can't do anything. Now, unfortunately, these kids have a rallying cause. They can say, this happened and it's not okay. And hearing from survivors from something like this is the most powerful thing. We had several, or there were several students at the march speaking. And I don't know if anyone else has heard about this part of the march, but there was a six-minute and 20-second moment of silence, because that's how long the attack took and nobody in those six minutes and 20 seconds questioned what was happening. Our attention was on the stage and was on the students and we were feeling those emotions. So what these kids are bringing forward is powerful. And I don't think they're going to go away because they have our attention. And even if it dies off after the midterms a little bit, what happens next will be solely because of their actions. And joining us from New York City, she is the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 in the great state of Ohio. She is joining us from her perch in lower Manhattan. She is Sharmila Chari. Sharmila, how are you? 
great, Justin. I thought Audrey just gave a great recap of the of the uh, March for Our Lives. I was actually uh, I attended the march here in New York for a bit, and I would echo her sentiments that it felt a lot like the first women's march. It felt like you just felt this energy crackling, and I couldn't I can't even tell you how many families I saw on the subway going up there. Kids, you know, as young as six, seven, eight all with signs they'd obviously created themselves and you know so much you saw you saw such a great opportunity for parents to talk to their children about you know the problems going on in our society and children really not just kind of play acting at something but children really grasping the situation that was going on and reacting in their own words even if it was the words of an eight-year-old it was still very powerful to see and to see how this new generation of citizens is really becoming engaged in this issue in such a novel and um, interactive way, much right. more so than I think the the little children who grew up in on some of the other kind of great social movements of our time. But I also wanted to address what you just talked about, Justin, when you said, "Do you think? Do you get the sense that this movement is something that you know is a flash in the pan and going to die out in six months?" I think that. Again, I'm going to make an analogy to the first Women's March. You had that massive um, burst of energy from women and a lot of men who were appalled by Donald Trump's election, and then nothing really happened. And you thought, oh, this misogynist is still in the White House, and you know we will march, but nothing's changing. And then 10 months later, you had Me Too. And you might not see a direct correlation between the two, but I think that you know, seeing that seeing that harnessing of energy at the beginning of the year emboldened journalists, it emboldened women, it emboldened all these people to suddenly start really investigating and going after these men who would abuse their power against women systematically for years and years. And so I think that you might not see in two months some meaningful action on, on gun violence, but I think that in the next year, in the next two years, you know, legislators and journalists and the people who make our civil society – they see the energy that's generated by these marches, and I think it's going to really have long-term effects, even if you don't see them in the short term. And Admiral Ken, I, you know, with, with everything going on and, and everything that we're seeing, we're I think for the first time seeing the NRA painting itself into a corner, or at least up against the ropes, and they're swinging hard. It, it, could this be the beginning of the? Uh, I don't want to say the downgrade, but the softening of the total stranglehold that it's had on Congress for as many years as it has. I I, I hope so. And and again, I'll I'll make the comment that if there was ever an organization or group that could uh, take on the NRA, uh, it's probably these young people. I mean, again, must see TV. To see Wayne Lapierre get into try to get into a shouting match with one of these kids, uh, I you know I I think he, they would they would look completely foolish doing so, and and the unfortunate truth of the matter is that these kids have got passion on their side and they've got facts on their side, and and uh, and it goes to the part two of the conversation I had with the gentleman seated next to me at dinner Sunday night. You know what? I, I'm a gun owner. I I you know what? I grew up around guns. But there is no good reason to have a weapon that was built for combat in the hands of regular people that shoots a bullet that's designed to tumble once it hits the body and come out God knows where after it hits the body. That's ridiculous. There's no point in it. And these kids have got facts on their side. 
Alan, here's what I don't get. We, you know, we've seen organizations try and fight the NRA. We, you know, we saw it with, you know, Gabby Giffords and her organization, uh, with uh, her husband, Captain Kelly. Uh, We've seen it with Michael Bloomberg and the major urban mayors and the money that's been behind that. Uh, We've seen, you know, even after uh, the Sandy Hook Pledge organization that uh, that took hold after the tragic events in Connecticut. What is what makes this group of kids able to put the NRA back on its heels that those other well-funded groups just could not do? Just the number, sheer numbers of people and and passion. Uh, I was I was re- reflecting on the, the the two women's marches, the original one, and then the one that that Audrey referred to, which 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 was a, a shadow of the first one. The first one that that Sharmila talked about, that was the day at, literally the, the a day or two after the inauguration, was this enormous pent up energy and anger about the president and, and Sharmila summed it up uh, nicely that, that both the anger that a guy with his record with women could a get elected and B that a woman who had uh, a magnificent resume and who people thought was going to win would somehow lose. So it was sort of this, this double whammy. It wasn't that she lost to a really, uh, a really, a really, progressive thinking man uh she lost to the, the this polar opposite in in virtually every way so there was in those in the in the first women's march this this anger but also this unifying feeling that okay women and and sympathetic men we're 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 in this together we're gonna we're gonna vent but they didn't in, in my judgment have a rallying purpose now me too i i do see the thread from that and the me too movement but the me too movement might have might have been prompted to some extent by all of that and it but it too i think was something whose time had come there was this pent-up history of absolutely grotesque behavior um uh by by uh, rich and powerful men and it exploded onto the scene in a sort of tsunami effect um, that that brought out all of this stuff. I don't think in in either of the women's marches that was anticipated, maybe by some, but but I although I do see a linkage. The the difference I'm trying to make between that though and this is that in this particular case, even though all of those who want some gun reform don't agree on exactly what the gun reforms should be. There's a strain of America, 20 to 25 percent right. of America, who think there should be no gun gun ownership. That's the group right. that the NRA paints uh, everybody with 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 that brush. Most people say we need some reforms. We need some changes. We need to take some of these weapons that Ken just ap- so aptly described away from from the civilian population, even though right. there's millions of them out there, you got to start somewhere. Right. But, but there's a purpose. 
behind and, right. this current mo- mo- motion movement, and it reminds me of the purpose behind Vietnam and the right. anti-Vietnam uh, 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 demonstrations, because right. their purpose was get the hell out of Vietnam, and that unified them, right. not in the detail, but in the big message. In this case, right. the unifying is make some changes to gun ownership laws and and make right. us safer. Right. Let me go to Charlie. You, had, can... you want to chime in? Yeah, well, if I can um, sort of add on to one of the points Alan made when he said, why, when you asked, why are these kids having an impact uh, when other groups to stand up to the NRA didn't, I think that because they offer such a juxtaposition to the NRA in, in two ways. One, you know, the NRA is comprised of more money than people, whereas the March for Our Lives, these students, they're more people than money. This is a movement that's barely a month old. They don't have money. I mean, I'm sure they're getting some funding from somewhere, but they don't have nearly the copious amounts of money that the NRA does. And so you really have this juxtaposition of, you know, the NRA representing big institutions and big money and vested interests and these kids representing a real, almost like Bernie Sanders, right? It's almost like Bernie versus Hillary. You get, you know, the true grassroots micro-funded movement. And the second point is that I think, um, Alan hit an important point when he said that the NRA has, you know, focused on this group that's um, this per, this percentage of the population that just wants to ban guns completely and paint, use that to paint any of their opponents with that very broad brush. Whereas these kids have come out, they came out right in the middle and said, look, we don't want to repeal the Second Amendment. We don't want to take away all guns, but we know there's got to be something better. There's got to be some better solution than just guns for everyone. All we're asking for is really sensible reforms that keep us safe. Right. And I think uh, that's why they've been from, so much more successful and, and achieved a moral high ground that right. the NRA seems to And joining us from the District of Columbia, he is the Bar Certified Attorney in Maryland and the Great District of Columbia. He is former Democratic and Joe Biden political operative and now recently off the market women. I know. Start crying today. He is Dan Littner Esquire. Dan, first of all, congratulations on your recent engagement. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, and well, and second Dan. of all, and and let now then okay, we we can do that at the end of the show. But uh, Dan, I I, I want to get your perspective on this. Is all things being considered, what has a group of you know? 80 to 100 high school students from Western Broward County, Florida, done differently than Michael Bloomberg, all of his money, all of the power of the urban mayors, and you know people like Gabby Giffords and Captain Kelly and the Sandy Hook Promise folks who have raised a considerable amount of money to this cause. What makes these kids different? It's pretty straightforward and pretty simple after seeing – uh, lots of well-intentioned and and real quality events and activities for lots of groups in Washington, D.C. and around the country. These kids have done one distinctly thing different. They have managed to keep themselves unadulterated, both literally and figuratively. It, for <laughs> groups for in a, in a, in a, in a hundred different ways, uh, allowing the political professionals and the political operatives uh, to taint them. And whether or not the merit of whatever organization or group or activist 
whatever the merit of their actual argument might be, as soon as you allow the sleazy uh, backroom politics type people to get hey, involved, hey, 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 name of the show, you, you, name of the show, you, 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 uh, it, it was deliberate. But if you once you once you allow our kind to get involved. You allow people to take shots at everything else surrounding the issue and to, and to cloud the issue from the conversation entirely. These kids have done a remarkable job pushing back on anyone else who wanted to take the light or take the conversation away from them. And to their credit, they're keeping that going. And the fact that they are kids, the Taking shots at kids politically is a dangerous thing. And the fact that the NRA and some people have said some horrible things about these kids, um, Lord only knows what they're thinking. Um, but that's what these, what these kids have done differently. I mean, the, the women's march that was amazing the uh, days after the, the uh, Trump inauguration and I wandered the crowd for both events and I had never seen anything like the women's march but I did notice distinctly that all the negative press went to the Ashley Judd and and the things that she said on stage and Madonna and the things that were a little bit iffy that clouded the message and for political professionals that know that the message matters and as soon as you get something else out there that taints things that can grab the narrative. And when Fox News did, did exactly that, they ran with it. And then once you get to the far worse than Fox News, they, they shouted it even louder. Whereas these kids had none of that. Even the, the legacy of activism represented by Martin Luther King's granddaughter, to which he spoke, it was very straightforward, on point, and grasp nothing other, and grab for nothing other than the issue at play. We could all Audrey, learn an awful lot from what they did. They did a great job. Audrey, let me go to you to close out the segment real quick. Is Dan brings up a good point? Is the adults haven't screwed this up beyond recognition? Is is this sustainable with the kids, with the younger generation? Can they? keep their eye on the ball, keep focused and make an effect change? Or is there a sense, or did you get the sense down there uh, that adults will sweep in and they'll screw this thing all up? You know, I, I think we will know come November. The biggest and most important statement I heard on Saturday was there are approximately 3 million people in the United States between the age of 18 and I want to say 30 they cited and if each and every one of us between those ages registers to vote and turns out on election day on primary day in their local districts in their local elections we would have the ability to make a change and i think that's what's so different here is with the women's march you couldn't after that day get an impeachment that was not feasible nobody nobody thought that it is a true fact that if you vote, if you get your voice out and you lobby your congressman, you, your voice can make a change and make an impact. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's never going to go away. I don't think anything an adult says will deter these, these kids from, from standing up and speaking out. From the Mount of Babes. 
Go figure. Hey, uh, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, Audrey, thank you very much. I really appreciate your insight on this segment. Uh, It was very valuable. Now go back to work. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Audrey. We're going to take we're going to we're going to take a quick break. There's literally so much. I'm going to take a a sneeze break, which is basically going to be the rejoinder music, and we're going to go to our next subject. This is something you're going to be seeing as long as there's this much political news every week. Uh, this is going to be the new format of the show uh, instead of having bumper music every 30 minutes. So uh, here it is. This is Backroom Politics. Let's move on. Uh, In case you have not noticed this week, uh, the White House continues to spin in total chaos. Uh, Between the Stormy Daniels interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, which, by the way, got its highest ratings in many years, and was even higher rated than the Donald Trump interview by several million. Uh, that was done on 60 Minutes. Uh, 22 million people watched the 60 Minutes interview between Anderson Cooper and Stormy Daniels on Sunday after a very exciting Elite Eight game that occurred. Uh, the Between that and the turmoil in staffing and the president's legal problems, there's a real problem at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and nobody can really put their finger on it, nobody except the man occupying the Oval Office, one Donald J. Trump. Let's talk about the Stormy Daniels uh, interview for a second, and then we're going to move on to the other chaos going on. Uh, Number one, Sharmila, let me go with you. Was was the Stormy Daniels interview uh, a letdown, or did it produce what you hoped it would produce? A little bit of both. I thought really? it was a let. Yeah, I thought it was a letdown, but also I think because it was a letdown, it increased her credibility. Um, you, do, do you? Let me ask you a question because you brought so, up one word. You brought up one word that I wanted to get your opinion and Dan's opinion on uh, before the interview and now, especially after the interview. Legally, is. Stormy Daniels, a credible witness. And I was, and Sharma, I'll go to you and then to Dan Littner. Well, legally, you can't prove she's not, right? To, to legally undermine her credibility, you have to show that she's lied under oath or committed some other sort of crime of moral turpitude. I'm probably throwing that term around incorrectly. Dan can correct me. But there's nothing, there's nothing disproving or demonstrating her non-credibility as, as a witness, um, you know, obviously, if she had any documentary or video or any other sort of physical evidence, that increases her credibility. The fact that I think that when the tabloid interviewed her in 2011, she took and passed a polygraph test, that could be seen as something that enhances her credibility. But there's nothing that's, that I've seen so far that's disqualified her as a credible witness. I Dan think the one thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Charlotte. Yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. I think that it's, you know, part of the reason this interview was a letdown was that we had a lot of Uh, fanfare about her being physically threatened and then her evidence of physical threat of of being physically threatened couldn't be corroborated so that was a letdown because had she had something like that it would have been a much much bigger deal Dan Lipner is 
Stormy Daniels a credible witness in your opinion? Um, so it's kind of hard to say because I, I, at a personal level, I think all of the issues are true in that both her accusations and the accusations against her. Um, the, the idea that she's coming out out of any sense of of taking the moral high ground is a little suspect, uh, to say the least. However, the payoff that seemed to have happened, and the the question about whether or not she was threatened, I would like to see uh, played out uh, significantly more uh, than Anderson Cooper seemingly leaving that issue on the table, uh, not exactly doing great investigative journalism there. Uh, <laughs> that said, uh, this is still, I think all of it's true. I think she's, she's doing this for the, for the money to cash out on an event that actually did happen. Um, and you see this play out. Uh, the biggest loser in this, I think she's going to successfully cash out in some way, shape or form. And, Uncharacteristically, the president has remained mum on this item, which suggests to me there's even more truth to it, or there's there there there's trouble in the 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 upper floors of of the White House that's keeping him silent. Alan Moore is is Stormy Daniels credible politically? Does she have enough gravitas well, right now to hit the? Trump administration hit the president hard. Well, I think she, yeah, I mean, I think that, <laughs> that the answer is yes, because everybody's talking about it. It's in the newspapers. It was, it had this huge um, viewership uh, on Sunday night and people are, are uh, dissecting it. Uh, they both reported on it and then commented on it later. I found her very credible because um, the 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 thing that the, the thing that she had to answer was how could you write a statement saying none of this was true the stuff that she had uh, said in an interview many years ago um, and just early in January of this year she wrote uh, this short affidavit and she said here's why I wrote that I was fearful. I was told bad things were going to happen to me if I didn't sign it, so I signed it, but it was not true. And that made sense. It fit the facts. So that, that was her biggest area of uh, sort of uh, credibility challenge for me. The, the, the fact that she's in violation of a nondisclosure agreement, interesting legal question. Um, does, does this president really want to be associated with trying to sue her for $20 million or $10 million or maybe now more, a million dollars per incident, supposedly, under the terms of their agreement. Um, uh, does he want to be associated with a $20 million plus dollar lawsuit against a woman with whom he denies ever having had a relationship? Um, I mean, there's so many absurdities to all of this. This lawyer of, of the president's who says, he paid the 130000 but he didn't. but he paid it out of his own money. Although he didn't have it in the bank, he had to take out a, a home equity loan. Boy, there's a, there's a top-flight lawyer um, <laughs> who has to, has to borrow what the, have I been on saying the house to make that kind of – can you imagine? 
Can you imagine the conversations he must be having with his wife? Um, yeah, honey, we need. I know we can't get those curtains and that new furniture, but I want to. I want to um, make a gift to <laughs> to president to, to my friend Donald Trump, who might be president. I think it could pay off in the long run. I mean, the the the, the legal vulnerability for for the president, of course, and for his lawyer is it, this whole question of whether this 130000 constituted an in-kind contribution, unreported and illegal, to the Trump presidential campaign. It, it so clearly was that, what can you say? I'm usually the guy that's saying, well, it looks like it, or allegedly, or, you know, you got to check it out. Nobody... No, no lawyer borrows it on his house to come up with a hundred and thirty thousand dollar undocumented loan to try to make something really embarrassing to a presidential candidate right. go away a few right. weeks before the election. Now, right. what's the penalty for that? I'll let I'll let our lawyers well, discuss. I want to go. I want to go to. What, I want to go to Dan Littner on. I want to go to Dan Littner on that. Dan, you know. Well, first of all, let me go to Ken. I want to go to Admiral Ken first before I go into the legalities of it. Admiral Ken, you know, you know, what's funny is just on the face of it, I mean, here you have a adult porn star. Uh, as a, you know, that's really the only kind of porn star there is. You have you have an adult <laughs> porn star. Come on, there are a lot of teenagers that would beg to differ with you. But go ahead. Well, let me just be clear. Uh, all right, yeah, you get, let's take that turn back out of the gutter there. Yeah, let's 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 try this again. You have an adult film star, Admiral Ken, that is literally on the most respected news show in America, being interviewed by one of the better journalists in America today, and she is literally describing a sexual scene with then citizen, but to be the future president of the United States, the gentleman that occupies the Oval Office at this time, talking about all kinds of graphic stuff and how he is, you know, it's not the first time that there were, there were possible other, you know, incidents where he wanted to have sex with her and she turned him down. And yet the, evangel- the, the evangelical community continues to give Donald Trump and his base continues to give Donald Trump a pass on this is there a point where the evangelicals or his base start seeing the hypocrisy can he be uh, look what Jesus did praise Jesus at the same time as having a, a what amounts to be a kick line of former porn stars and former uh, playboy playmates and, and, and others in the entertainment industry that have openly come out saying, I've had long-term sexual affairs with the president. Are they going to buy into this or not? Uh, I, I, I am continually amazed, uh, and, and, I, and I know there, there are a couple of, couple of these folks that have, that have been on, on teams that I've managed in the past that I've kind of opened up conversations with that, 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 qualify, that call themselves, categorize themselves as evangelicals. And one of these people, without a doubt, is one of the finest human beings I, I have, I've ever known. And and, she, and interestingly, she's a woman, and, and this person's a woman, and and I am one amazed that uh, as a woman, uh, and she and as in, in uh, the the teams that we in the, uh, the she's worked for me at least three times. She is not a shrinking violet. She is a she is a strong-willed, well-educated, smart, sassy 
will tell you to, you know, to, 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 to kiss off at the drop of a hat um, and is also an evangelical. And so I was just I was I fell off my chair when I heard her basically stand up and defend um, President Trump. So uh, the answer to that question, Justin, is I, I don't know. I don't understand the dynamic. Uh, I don't get it. Uh, I firmly believe that years from now, uh, we will refer back to you know the, the days of the, of the of the Trump presidency as the as the soiling of America, um, because everything the guy touches, everything about him that that touches our lives, you know, you you walk away from it feeling like you need a shower, and you know the the uh, the the interview with Stormy Daniels, you know when when he's sitting there. Uh, either just about to or just having had sex with this woman talks about the fact that she reminds him of his daughter. Oh my God. Really? Really? Yeah. That's the creepiest oh, line oh, of the thing. Oh my God. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Mean, and this is also it, it, somebody that but he tells he did everyone it to that. Catherine McDougal. He did it to Catherine McDougal. The playmate said the exact same thing. But the point, the point is, the point is, I mean, this, everything about this man and everything around this man it's just right. a little dirtier, and it needs some 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 Clorox after it's been anywhere near him. And right. and I guess and the thing the thing that you know, the, the the question that you asked about the evangelicals, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I grew up Southern Baptist, and and um and well and but and I will honestly say the people in my parents' church, you know, don't back this guy, but it's a black Southern Baptist church, so <laughs> he's not going to be very popular anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let, let, but, let me add something on evangelicals, if I could. Sure. Yeah, go ahead, Alan Moore. Yeah, so I, I do think that we we have to be careful not to just simply make a mistake and put all evangelical, all so, you know, self-proclaimed uh, evangelical Christians into the same box. It's like with any other group. Um, I'm staggered by by the, the reaction of church leaders, for example, and many members. I'm also I think it's important to acknowledge that there are there are there are no doubt millions of 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 evangelical Christians who are disgusted with this and appalled by this who would still say that they warts and all would rather have Trump in the White House than Hillary Clinton in the White House. So we have to be careful not to simply say why are they embracing this grotesque behavior? Um some of them are you know, in, in effect, saying, um, "Love, you know, <laughs> hate the sin, love the sinner," um, but, but, uh, uh, but, oh my God, I can't imagine how horrible it would be if Hillary Clinton were in the White House. So there's there's gradations here of acceptance of this behavior. That was the only but point I to, wanted to you make. Have Justin, to Justin, Justin, yeah, go ahead. Not not okay. the numbers I, I, there are though. I, oh, hold I've on, got hold to, on. Admiral Ken, Admiral Ken, then Dan, go ahead. I, I've, I've got to interject this. You know, I, I've been a voting Republican my entire adult life. Um, only time I did not vote Republican was this last election and once in a Texas election way back when. And the 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 thing that that I can't uh, I can't get past is that if Barack Obama, if George W. Bush if Bill Clinton had done any of the stuff that we've seen Donald Trump do in the last year and a half, they would have backed a, uh, a U-Haul van up to the White House and, and, and run the guy out on the rails. And, and so, you know, I don't understand 
you know, why we're, why this, why this person continually, continually gets mulligan after mulligan after mulligan when it's clear that he's never going to change his ways. And even the Wall Street Journal this morning had an editorial about the fact that Donald Trump, his behavior is going to cost him the presidency. That was from the Wall Street Journal, a paper owned by Rupert Murdoch. I don't know what it's going to take right. to get these people to wake up. I don't get it. I don't understand. Dan Lipner, you had a comment? Yeah. So I mean, by the 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 self-proclaimed evangelical right. Uh, there, I mean, there, there there are there are evangelicals on the left, but we'll have to segregate them uh, at the. Uh, yes, they are sticking with Donald Trump, much to all of our amazement. Two lines that that stick with me. One is the stupid bumper sticker uh, line that is the, the 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 Christian right is neither, and the other line was something that Bob Dole said years and years ago back when he was uh, in the Senate. And his his line was when he was talking about the uh, why the Republican Party uh, worked as much with the evangelical right as they did, even though seemingly uh, for at least some of the economic stuff where the Christian right or evangelical Christians used to be um, were seemingly different from where the Republican Party uh, traditionally was for the the Rockefeller Republicans, the the, the financial uh, side of the Republican Party. And the line from Bob Dole was, and I'm quoting here, if it weren't for the Christian right, the Republican Party would barely be a national party. And that begins to explain an awful lot. The problem is once you're talking about faith and belief and whether or not people are being sincere with their faith and belief, the hate the sin and not the sinner still suggests that the sinner is somehow repentant and wants to correct their ways and wants to be shown to the light or it has any, any has salvation along the way. I'm an agnostic Jew. So I look at all this from, from an outsider's perspective. And each time I hear those folks talking, I can't help but think they are just saying words and they believe none of it. I know lots of people of deep faith but none of them are represented with the folks that are backing Trump. You know, I look at I look at the old school, the old old school. You know, under the tent evangelicals, uh, Billy Graham. I look at Oral Roberts. <clears throat> I look at them and I think to myself, you know, in the heyday, I don't think that Billy Graham and Oral Roberts would put up with this. But then we look at their kids who have taken over those dynasties and they're the biggest Trump supporters. I mean, I'm here in central Florida, right in the heart of the Bible belt of the I four corridor, which is Eastern central Florida, the Eastern counties, all red, all evangelical, uh, everywhere. And you look at even the TV shows, you know, you flip through the TV shows and you see evangelicals praising Donald Trump, for not killing babies and showing the moral light. And you sit there maybe 10 minutes later and you look at the Stormy Daniels interview on 60 Minutes. It makes no sense to me. However, I want to ask, Sharma, I want to ask a legal question on this before we go to the top of the hour. You know, looking at Michael Cohen and, you know, especially what we know after the uh, Stormy Daniels interview on 60 Minutes, the Michael Cohen issue is not necessarily a 
uh, a sidelined issue. This could be legal exposure for the president as well. Two questions for you. One, does Michael Cohen, is there enough out there right now that Michael Cohen could face uh, administrative procedures by the New York bar, if not disbarment? Um, you know, I think he's, he's convicted of a felony, then certainly, yes. I think he needs to first worry about his criminal liability before the New York bar. I think one one shoe sort of solves the other. But <laughs> okay. certainly, I think that, look, I mean, if, you know, Michael Cohen is in some sort of legal jeopardy here, whether or not it goes up to the, and that's, that was my main takeaway from Stormy Daniels' interview as well, right? Michael Cohen is clearly in violation of, of campaign finance laws. Does, does Michael Cohen and practice so law whether, this time next year? Hopefully let her finish. <laughs> I mean, I will stand by my argument that I think Michael Cohen is the second worst lawyer in America. So, um, you know, the, the fact that he's practiced law this long uh, the fact that his client is somehow even less informed than he is, I think, is, is a big part of that. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that if, again, if this all, if, if Robert Mueller follows this trail and indicts Michael Cohen, then, yeah, I think that, I think the chances of him practicing law next, this time next year are quite low. I just got to know, Sh- who's the Charlotte. worst lawyer in the country? <laughs> What's... <laughs> you, what was that? Hold on. Too many people. Admiral Ken, what was that? I, I just got to know who's the worst lawyer in the country. It's not Dan, is it? No. Oh, no. It's 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 Sam Nunberg. <laughs> oh, okay. The <laughs> lawyer who went on TV and said who's he, he wouldn't answer a federal subpoena. <laughs> exactly. That's the worst lawyer in America. <laughs> and Dan Littner. Hey, if, if, if Trump wants to hire you as a lawyer, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Everybody's talking over everybody. Hold on. Make Mueller go Dan away. Dan Littner, go. Dan Littner, go ahead. That if Donald Trump wants to hire me as his lawyer, I have a surefire way of making the Mueller investigation go away. All he's got to do is, is hire me, and I will deliver the letter from the president to the Speaker of the House myself with the condition that Mueller goes away. That's, that, I, 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 will be, I, I will take the job right now. <laughs> well, apparently you're the so, only lawyer hang on, in hang on, D.C. So. You're the only lawyer in D.C. that will take the job, Dan. I mean, we got to look at the list of white shoe law firms that have effectively turned down the president in in taking this case. Why? Why is? Sure. Hey, hey for, no, no, hang on, hang on. I'm sorry, but I just I want to. Charmelin made raised a really interesting question, which which we might want to dis- discuss briefly, which is, does Mueller dig in to the Cohen payment, if you will, on behalf of? the president's campaign. It's a violation of federal campaign laws. Normally the FEC would go digging into that. That takes a long time. The question is, is Mueller looking at that? Should he look at that? And what, and what kind of, of angst does that create uh, in, in this White House? Um, well, it's that's, a serious that's, crime. That's another topic and, and, for another show. Alan, what I want to do is get a uh, is get one of our friends from the uh, former one of our friends who used to serve on the FEC or another high spun political attorney in the Republican Party, get them on and get their take on it. Uh, I'd like to get that. But I agree. It's something that we're going to talk about in a future show. That's definitely a topic. 
But I mean, the, the point that, two, just, yeah, yeah. just to two, Alan's two point, oh, the, yeah. the Whitewater did lead to Monica Lewinsky, two things that were seemingly entirely disconnected. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So are you saying that Russia could lead to Stormy Daniels, that could lead to Michael Cohen's payment, that can lead to impeachment? We've literally seen it before. So let me ask you this yeah, question. I mean, if the, Russia's already it, leading to Donald Trump's financial entanglements, that's true. That might not necessarily but, be related to Russia. That's true. But Dan Lipner, let me ask you, from an elections law aspect, is there enough evidence being brought out on the Stormy Daniels side to get the FEC to take the case? And if so, I mean, because we've seen the FEC traditionally has been a weak organization that's been pretty much a puppet with strings pulled by the White House. Is is the current seated FEC strong enough, independent enough that they could actually cut that cord and take this on and be independent enough to make it a true investigation? I mean, that, that's not an unreasonable question. So, And I don't know all the uh, people who are on the board of the FEC at the moment uh, to, to make that call. However, just on the raw substance of it, if John Edwards went to court on this, uh, I think there's a lot more on Trump than there was on John Edwards uh, it, with, with the connections there than, than uh, what we're dealing with now. That Donald Trump is in a lot more jeopardy. So I, my only question is whether, again, coming back to the whether or not Melania's uh, prenuptial agreement is more or less than twenty million dollars. Trump's going after Stormy Daniels for. Alan Moore. See, uh, just the, the, the FEC has an e- equal number of Democrat and Republican uh, commissioners. I think it's three and three. What I don't remember is if we have a full complement right now. I was. I, I think we lost one or two, and, and these are always a negotiation between Democrats and Republicans. Okay, we'll give you this one, you give us ours, and then it moves ahead. So it's not like the, the White House can control it. Now, I think you do need a majority to, to open an investigation, although I'm not sure. I did want to say that there were two big losers from the Stormy Daniels show that need to be noted. When I heard her describe the magazine incident that with rolled up a magazine and the president dropping his pants and she giving him some swats. It was like, Oh my God, this is an amazing thing we're hearing. And this is something we're going to be hearing Monday night on all of the late night comics. And the losers last night were Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon who played repeats from weeks ago. And it was only Stephen Colbert, who could take that rich new vein of information and and uh, and and have fun with it, Kimmel and Fallon missed out. Yeah, that good point. Very good point. Well, I mean, right now uh, the right now the current seating of the Federal Elections Commission under uh, Chairwoman Caroline Hunter, obviously when the president is in charge. It is a Republican leadership versus a Democrat leadership. Uh, it is two and two. There are two vacant seats, one Republican run Democrat. So we do not have a full slate of commissioners so on the I have FEC. A question. 
I have a question for the lawyers. So if if uh, Michael Cohen violated federal election um, laws and he gets a pardon from the president, does he still get to practice law? That's up to bars. That's up yeah, to the bar, and, and he's a New York bar attorney. So, Sharmla, I'll go to you. Does if he does get a pardon, does he still get to practice law in the state of New York? Um, unclear. I think that if he were disbarred, he could petition to be reinstated, but it's unclear if that would be successful. Interesting. Interesting. Sure. All right, we're going to move on. He'll get, yeah, probably. All right, we're going to move on. And we've, we're going to take a quick break. It's the top of the hour. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other chaos going on. HR McMaster is out. Sharmla, you won the Deadpool this week. Congratulations. Woo-hoo. HR McMaster is out. John Bolton's in, and that's got even Republicans scared. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. This is
backroom politics. And we're back here for the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio from a split-screen edition. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, broadcasting from the Sunshine State, the great state of Florida. Joining us from New York City is attorney Sharon Lachari. And from the National Capital Region, the Honorable Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, and Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hey, we're going to change uh, focus a little bit. It's all tied in because... This is just absolutely crazy, but there's all kinds of stuff happening inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that's got a lot of people concerned about the chaos that's going on. Uh, There is all kinds of things happening. For example, let's talk about the discharge of the National Security Advisor. It was announced late last week that uh, H.R. McMaster will be departing the administration as the now second in 18 months, national security advisor to the president. And he is being replaced by the mustached one. He is being replaced by John Bolton, the former UN ambassador and longtime. This is a guy that makes hawks look like chickens. That is how hockey he is. It is got a lot of Republicans concerned. It's got a lot of Democrats up at arms, even some saying that they may try and uh, put sanctions on the White House if he is seated as a national security advisor. I don't see that happening. I don't see what effect they have on that. But there are, there are a lot of people nervous about what's going on. What strikes me as being – well, first of all, let me go to you, Alan Moore. Why is John Bolton so scary even to Republicans? Well <laughs> – He's scary because of the things that he has said and done in a long history uh, of, uh, of public service and then think tank work and commentary from the outside. He was sufficiently controversial that he couldn't get the votes to be U.N. ambassador um, uh, in, in uh, George W. Bush's uh, presidency, and, and, and Bush made the, the, the controversial <laughs> Uh, decision to give him a recess appointment um, that didn't turn out all that well because Bolton uh, offended so many people in the United Nations um, and in the world of politics as most of us know it, it's useful to to be smarter than the next guy um, but it's but but that doesn't get the job done for you if you can't get along with the next guy so the personal skills as well as knowledge um, are are really important. And what what John Bolton seemed to have the ability to do was to so offend people by his arrogance, his attitude, uh, his demands was that people simply wouldn't work with him. Um, apparently, President Trump was attracted to him because he has said some tough sounding stuff. And as we know, um, this president loves to sound tough. He likes to to associate with uh, with people that he perceives as tough until they annoy him, and then he gives them the uh, the old heave ho. Um, he watched Bolton on television. Um, he's read apparently or heard of. He doesn't read a lot, as we know, but apparently heard that that Bolton talked tough about Iran and tough about North Korea. Um, what he may well, not he watches them on Fox the, every night. Well, he, he sees them on Fox or he hears, but those guys aren't always talking about all those things. So he'll say, so what, where is he on Korea or where is he on Iran? 
Um, and uh, what he what the president hasn't apparently uh, discovered yet, um, uh, or maybe has, and maybe Bolton will never get the job, was that 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 Bolton played a role in the in the run up to and decision to to go into Iraq. The decision that, right. that President Trump throughout his campaign said was the worst decision that the U.S. government had ever had ever made. Now, he actually has some support on that. Um, and uh, and he's got with uh, with John Bolton, somebody who not only was a, was on the other side of that issue then, but to this day. Um, and I actually give him a little bit of credit for this myself, but I doubt whether the president would. Um would say that that uh, you know we got rid of Saddam Hussein. How do you how can you call something that did that uh, uh, all bad? I mean, he tries to defend even now. Most people don't defend. They would rather not talk. They said we have that information. It's too bad. Um, but but it's it's sort of fascinating that a guy who is so identified on the right. other side of that issue and still defends it is about to become. And, the national security advisor right. to this president. Right. Admiral Ken, when we look at John Bolton, you know, we look at him to, you know, this is a guy that advocated for first strike against Pyongyang in North Korea. This is a guy who has advocated for first strike to take out the nuclear capabilities in Iran. Is this guy more dangerous than not as far as, uh, is he going to have an ear, a stronger voice in the president's ear than the adult in the room and the only adult left standing pretty much, General uh, Mattis, the Secretary of Defense? Um, with, uh, with, with an adult in the room, I don't worry so much about uh, Bolton. Um, but if it's just Bolton and the president, yeah. And that's probably going to cause me to have to do, do some uh, some some uh, some sleep aids. Um, you know what I what I found also interesting about Bolton and Allen uh, was pretty good. He only left out one point. Uh, President Bush couldn't get Bolton um, confirmed in a Republican-controlled um, Senate. <laughs> that's saying something right there. I mean, holy cow! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I had a, I had I had one of those those uh, those encounters that you often have here in this town because there's so many uh people of uh, um of high profile and i ran into him in the, one of the uh the airline clubs at uh, reagan national and you know whenever I, I run into these people i always make a point of saying hello how are you thank you for your service that kind of thing you know whether i'm in uniform or not and you know uh ambassador bolton you know breezed by and i said uh, mr ambassador hello how are you thank you for your service and you know what i got back oh uh. <laughs> I mean, oh, he'll fit right in with the Trump administration. Most of those people, most of those people are, are uh, Rand Paul, uh, who I have you know great political differences on, but the guy was a gentleman. Hey, thanks a lot, I appreciate it. Who are you from? Who are you? That kind of thing. Hello, thank you, whatever. But Bolton, I got. Uh, okay, have a nice day. <laughs> you know, the the funny thing about it is. It's almost like the Democrats are hoping that John Bolton gets seated. Dan Lipner, is, is this a gift for the Democrats to say, look, this guy's a nut job. The guy's crazy. He's going to get us blown up. You really need to elect us into power in Congress. Is he a rallying cry for the Dems? 
No, it's too much inside baseball, and I don't think anyone's rooting for uh, John Bolton for the simple fact of the job is way too important and the consequences are way too dangerous. Uh, Bolton is a, is a crazy man. And lo- looking back at all the things that we have done wrong, that most people have agreed that we have done wrong, and he looks at it and goes, great idea. Uh, it's terrifying. There, the, there seems to be no upside to Bolton. I can, and you know, I, I and while I'm a partisan Democrat, I do try to look for upsides in, in different players. Bolton is one that don't got one. Uh, he, that nothing but bad news there if he actually does take that office down down the hall from the Oval. Sharmila, is is, is there enough? Uh, concern inside the party that uh, the Democrats could possibly take some action. I don't know what that could possibly be, but could take some action against the White House to prevent or can or convey their displeasure with John Bolton being the Trump whisperer on national security. Well, I don't think that there's anything can do right now. Um, you know, as you know that. National Security Advisor is not a Senate-confirmable position, but I think you have a, some some bit of a precedent with the furor that erupted when Steve Bannon was appointed to the National Security Council at the beginning of President Trump's term. And, you know, he only lasted, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was five weeks before he was right. removed because the president right. did not like all the bad press he was getting over it. And, you know, it wasn't a battle he wanted to fight. So I think that Democratic activists can, I, I, I think that, um, I'll disagree with Dan slightly that I think Democratic activists and these grassroots groups can create enough lather about this that the president could double check his choice. And and we know that the number one thing or one of the number one things that sours Donald Trump on someone is bad publicity. So if if Democratic activists um, and senators can garner enough bad publicity around Bolton, then chances are his time as national security advisor might be short. I mean, Admiral Ken. Right, but uh, me, if I can pl- go, yeah, go down that road Dan a little bit more. First, the, Dan first. The, the Bannon wasn't taken out on partisan grounds. Bannon was taken out because the national security professionals looked around and said, what's this political hack doing in the room? And that's where the noise came. As soon as it becomes right. a partisan argument, I'm not certain it goes quite as far. Admiral Ken, here, here's my question. Is the the walk softly carry a big stick approach that general mattis tends to have as secretary of defense versus the bomb them all straight to hell and let satan figure them out approach of john of uh, of uh, ambassador john bolton they seem to be diametrically opposed as far as approaches to very sensitive issues like the middle east iran nuclear deal North Korea and the Korean Peninsula, even China. Is, is this conflict going to be a problem as far as keeping national security straight in the White House? Well, you know, I think uh, – I, I, I don't remember who wrote the book. It was about, uh, about uh, Lincoln, um, and I think it was called A Team of Rivals. And you've heard you know, various – It was Doris Kearns Goodwin. Goodman. Goodman, yeah. You know, and good book, by the way. And, you know, but a lot of the presidents, you know, you know, routinely, you know, uh, surround themselves with people 
of differing differing uh, points of view on purpose. Uh, I think to say that this was Donald Trump's purpose in doing this would be, uh, you know, up there with believing in uh, the the tooth fairy, because I don't think he's he he understands how to do that. Um, so will it be an ongoing conflict? Yeah, I hope so, because uh, one, uh, a, a good, reasonable decision maker should always be willing to hear counter counter arguments. Always, you know, when you surround yourself, um, I think as Trump has in his in his uh, um, private sector setting, uh, with you know people who never disagree with him, um, it's no wonder he was you know he's been in bankruptcy so many times. But uh, in this situation, I want him to have people with differing opinions, and I'm really counting on people like General Kelly and General Madison, one or two other of the folks that he hasn't managed to disaffect yet, to stand up and say, yeah, you know, sir, you might want to think about this for a minute or two, and here's why. Yeah, but Alan Moore, when we, when we talk about national security and, and we see, I, I mean, again, arguably, the, the two highest-ranking officials in national security, that being the Secretary of Defense and – the one who's got the president's ear, the national security advisor, uh, those two being put together as some sort of like gladiator in the Colosseum of Rome and Trump looking down like Commodus at the gladiator games, that doesn't give me a warm and fuzzy when I'm thinking this is how we're doing national security uh, policy and national security agenda is – Trump lets them go fight it out, and the last one standing gets his way. Yeah, I don't see it working like that, though. Um, uh, I mean, it's convenient for us to create that narrative, but we know now that that uh, General McMaster had basically been cut out of uh, access to the president for a significant period of time now. He's on the same second floor of the west wing of the White House, but he might as well have been across the street. So. He wasn't calling the shots, um, and we're not. Uh, for, we're forgetting that General Kelly is in in the room more than anyone. We're forgetting that that uh, CIA Director Pompeo, who's uh, been nominated to be Secretary of State, was seeing the president every day doing the the daily presidential brief. He's going to have a big job at the State Department, but he has a well-established relationship to the, with the president. He knows how to talk to the president, which is a skill that apparently McMaster never, pardon the expression, mastered, never sort of figured out. <laughs> he would like to, he would lecture the president, apparently, and the president would start rolling his eyes and get impatient. Well, I'm not saying that as a criticism of, of McMaster, who probably in his own mind dumbed down complicated stuff into two pages, but the president wanted two sentences. So, so we don't know how this is all going to work out, assuming Bolton is there. And I think that, that much as, as we have every reason to be nervous about Bolton and suspicious of Bolton, let us also acknowledge that he's been around. He's a survivor. He's acknowledged to be a smart guy. And he, you know, maybe he's, here's one of those times where we don't know whether we want him to be smart and figure out how to work his, himself into the good graces of the president and have more influence, or whether we want him to be the, uh, the, the jerk that, that Ken met 
uh, who didn't have the, the the time of day for him and maybe doesn't suffer fools and so on. He has the reputation of being somebody who, using the phrase, kisses up and kicks down. So he'll kiss up to the president and make everybody else's life miserable. Maybe. But he's also 68 years old. He's learned a few things along the way. Having said that, as with President Trump, when we start hoping against hope that that somebody's going to change, let's not hold our breath because that tends uh, that 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 tends not to happen. There are going to be more players than than two people. And and the, the the president has said, yeah, he likes to see people duke it out. But I don't see him calling Mattis over, who's also got a big job over across the river, um, and Bolton. Bolton could have massive influence if he figures well, out how to talk to the president. That's the scary the, part is if, if well, John no, no, Bolton, I'm, I'm well aware, but I'm also simply saying that we don't know how it's going to work out. There was a huge sigh of relief when McMaster was first made, named because we thought, wow, that's great. He's a grown up. He knows this stuff. He's written books. He's going to he's going to what a fabulous person. He's going to be there. Well, not only did he piss off the president, but he was pissing off Mattis and Tillerson, too. So. So it, that was why it was such an easy mark to know that that he that he had to go is none of us would would, would want think Bolton is the answer in a case like that. Um, we don't. But but we it's not a risk we want to take. But we also don't know for certain what the relationship's going to be and what all Bolton's going to say. Bolton says, let's tear up the Iran deal. And Mattis and Kelly and Pompeo say, you know, <laughs> it's tempting, but here's the problem with doing that. We don't know what President Trump will do. I don't like the Bolton voice on the inside, but it's not the only voice. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, uh, you know, one of the other issues that, you know, speaking of, you know, poking the sleeping bear, we're definitely poking the sleeping dragon this late last week, the president also announced trade tariffs against China, uh, which sparked a lot of concern caused the markets to just take a nosedive, but they seem to have recovered uh, early part of this week with a big gain of over 650 points yesterday. But yet today it took a big nosedive or a significant nosedive dropping over 250 points at close today. Uh, is, is this a smart move? The tariff deal is, is, are we not giving Donald Trump enough credit on this? Uh, Alan Morley, start with you. You're the one closest to it as a former undersecretary for international affairs of commerce. I, I hate this stuff. I think it's very <laughs> dangerous. I think it's based on his fundamental ignorance about what, country to country trade deficits look like and why they exist. China's a special case. China is a special case. China steals American intellectual property. They steal it in a whole host of ways. Sometimes they extort it out of out of us and we decide we'll build factories um in uh, uh high tech factories in China because we feel like if we don't do it, the Europeans will do it, and we just as soon get something out of it. Um, and sometimes it's espionage, 
um, and and sometimes it's copy it's taking stuff, copycatting it, and so on. So we we have struggled for years trying to figure out what to do uh, uh, about all of that, and I don't think we've done a very good job. I don't think the blunderbuss of of tariffs um, is uh, is the right answer either. I mean, it's what prompted Gary Cohn to leave the White House. The whole notion of time for time for tariffs, first on steel and aluminum, and now on a whole host of products uh, aimed at China. We will get something from China out of this. It won't be all bad. And as we've seen with this president, we we were going to slap a tariff on all imported steel and aluminum, and then we started doing exceptions. Right. And right. more and more and more and more and more. And it came down to a handful of countries. So it sounds horrible, which it is, and then it then it gets scaled down to something that's not as crazy as the first thing. It's not because it was the plan, in my judgment, but because because when he finally announces and the and the and the market responds by falling off the table, he says, "Oh wait, what? What? Why didn't you tell me? So, we tried, Mr. President. We tried, and so he." He modifies and scales right. back. So we'll see. So but I, I, the market hates this kind of uncertainty, and that's what you're seeing with all this volatility. But, you know, here's, here's what gets me perplexed, and, and Charmel, let me go to you, is the issue is we've heard late today that there is some negotiation, like, for example, we hear that there's a possible trade deal, a revamped trade deal with South Korea. Uh, we hear that while all these tariff ranting and raiding and we're going to issue tariffs and then uh, Beijing coming back saying, well, we're going to tariff you in the back and forth. What we're hearing today from the White House is that there may be a possible deal with Beijing. Are we not giving President Trump enough credit on the economy or is this a matter of everything else overshadows the possible good things he's doing? keeping our economy rolling. I think we're giving him too much credit. I think really? that we've, you know, yes, I think that Donald Trump is, and I've said this before, he's incredibly short-sighted in terms of the economy. Yes, he's, you know, the fact that he's Republican, the fact that he passed tax reform has, you know, has led to gains in the stock market. And, you know, you do have favorable unemployment numbers, but as we've talked about in the show, it's really unclear what the quality of that employment is. Are people being, you know, sort of employed to the best of their ability and to the, are they maximizing their earning potential? So we still don't kind of, we don't, we don't have the data to, to assess those, those questions. But I think more than that, you, you have a president who, as Alan says, you know, fundamentally misunderstands uh, the the nature of trade deficits between countries and fundamentally misunderstands the future of the American economy. He's a guy who's still talking about investing in steel and coal and all these industries from the 1950s, whereas he should be talking about investing in clean energy, investing in robotics, investing in an AI, and he's ceding ground to America's competitors on that front in massive, you know, in massive numbers. He's not investing in the fields of the future, and so I think that, yes, you might get some short-term gains now, but in 20 years, the effect of these policies is going to become very clear. Dan Lipner, you agree with Sharmila? 
I mean, if Donald Trump were a more shrewd negotiator in spite of what he's about his ghostwritten book, there could be something here. However, what we've seen is that Trump gives away his bargaining position for nothing. So if Donald Trump was used to this, these these uh, tariffs as a as a lever to start up things moving, uh, and worth noting, other people's responses, not the least of which, or other countries' responses, not the least of which, uh, being China's, have been remarkably tempered in response. And if Donald Trump brings the other side to the table and actually gets concessions in return, great. However, there has been little sign that this president has the slightest idea of what he's doing. He is not capable of the Nixon goes to China kind of thing, or you know, even Ronald Reagan, the peace through strength, and then negotiating with the leaders of the Soviet Union. That's not what we have here. What we've seen is Donald Trump instantaneously gives away his bargaining position. And in this case, he's done it once before with China when he campaigned uh, that China was a currency manipulator. And while that is a arguable position with facts, and I know Alan would probably agree with this, that said, he still took position and the Chinese would have had to contend with it until he simply gave it away. So the question is, what is this president doing other than just being reactionary? And this is now to every other point we've made on the show where he's simply just trying to manipulate the news cycle to get things he doesn't like off the TV screen. He can't keep his eyes off. Alan Moore, quick, quick answer on this one. I've heard some, I've heard some economists say that there's concern that Donald Trump is basically swinging above his weight class and that he's going to get played by Beijing uh, could be played by the EU, could be played by even Moscow. Uh, is, is there a legitimate concern here that, you know, the great negotiators going in there and they're looking at him and just patting him on the head saying that's adorable, go sit in the corner? Well, so so he is definitely uh, uh, unprepared for what he's doing here, and he – the saddest part of that is that he doesn't accept what what I just said as a fact. He would be offended by it. He would want to harm me for saying such a thing because he sees himself, at least right. when he speaks about himself, as a, a genius who knows more than everyone else on any policy matter that you could possibly suggest. But and, and, and Alan, let me just interject one thing here. Mask, let me just interject. Let me just interject one factor here is the other concern I hear is, is not only is the president swinging above his weight class, but he doesn't have exactly the trade all-star team surrounding him. I give you our Secretary of Commerce and our foreign trade rep. Well, so, so interesting. Um, uh, I'm not, I'm not – uh, I'm not impressed with our Secretary of Commerce, but our U.S. trade rep is an old, longtime friend of mine, um, served with him in the Senate, um, uh, know him pretty well, Bob, Robert Lighthizer. Um, but, but he's 
you know, he's the guy who's been charged with going out and renegotiating uh, the, 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 the North uh, American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, with the Canadians and then with the Mexicans. And then he's got to figure out uh, what kind of uh, tariffs uh, will, do, will do the least damage to U.S. interests. Um, it, it's, not, it's not that uh, Lighthizer has not been identified as one of those who is pushing this, um, let's hit them with tariffs. That was the, the, the in the White House uh, uh, advisor, Peter Navarro, and then the Secretary of Commerce. Um, so it, it's a little hard to, to, to place responsibility in particular places. It is clear that the president has trouble attracting A-level folks. And when he does attract them, as I think most would acknowledge that, that Gary Cohn was was a was a quality uh, a, a quality hire, uh, he drove them out of there, um, and um, and then other quality hires uh, he couldn't adapt to. You know, I'm not. I can talk about the problems McMaster had, but most people thought, hey, good choice, smart guy, um, it, and it didn't work out. So. Um, and and the the people in the wings are not, uh, are not the first level folks. So when you lose one, you know, you see this with his legal team, he can't get a legitimate experienced criminal lawyer to come on board. He likes to go out and say, Oh my God, they're lining up to work in the oval office. They, they, they want to be, I already said I'm available. (laughs) <laughs> they want the yeah exactly, but I'm I'm you know I'm, and I'm never I I won't even say it Dan you got don't go there don't go there Dan, and don't so, do it so so I know I mean Dan's an example the A team who says I mean he's the he's the counterexample but he's a Democrat so it's you know there's some things that are disqualifying um, but but this president much as he thinks that everybody wants to work for him then he just he just uh, uh, tends have this tendency to uh, pee on his shoe, pardon the expression, um, when he thinks that he's got a plan that could work to to attract more lawyers. And and let me let me let me just say to him, when you tell people, yeah, they all want to work here and and, and become famous and, and 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 powerful and bill lots of extra hours because I'll have to start over again. That's not the way you attract. The, the the A team of of criminal lawyers. Um, well, we reported and, uh, we reported last week. We reported last week that Ted Olson had turned it down for the second time, and he was on uh, Andrea Mitchell's show yesterday, saying that there was no way in hell he was going to take the president on as a client. No, I mean, in in most of the most of those guys are going to say, "Gee, I it, rather than trash the president unless they have another purpose." Um, they don't want to be known as the the hotshot lawyer who goes out and trashes presidents and potential lawyers because unless you're Ted Olson, you're a, if, 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 no. But even if you're Ted Olson, you and I didn't hear what he said yesterday. But if you're Ted Olson, who's a who's a seasoned pro, he yeah. doesn't want to become the target of the president. So he just says there are a couple of a couple of Chicago lawyers this uh, just today uh, who were approached said, you know, gee, we're honored to be asked. Unfortunately, we have some conflicts. So we're not going to be able to do it. And now, that's the, Ted, Ted, the, the easy, Ted, gentle. Just, just for clarification, Alan, Ted Olson went on Andrea Mitchell's show yesterday and basically came out and said, A, there was no way in hell he was going to take it. And I'm paraphrasing him on this point. There was no way he was going to take the job. Number two, 
he said that, you know, normally you look at an organized process in government. Everybody expects an organized process. There's always going to be a little bit of chaotic nature in government. Ted Olson pretty much called this out as being just chaos far beyond anything he's seen in his career, which was kind of shocking saying that uh, on open mic. That was very impressive. Um, hey, uh, real, real quickly, because I, 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 there's a couple of other topics I got to touch on real quick. Uh, number one, it was also announced late last night that, uh, again, your old agency, Alan, the Department of Commerce has instructed the U.S. Census to put a question on, are you a citizen on the 2020 census? This has since sparked a lawsuit by the state of California in federal court and has drawn the ire of pretty much every minority organization in America, not to mention drawn the ire of a lot in Congress, including some of his own party that have called this uh, irresponsible <clears throat> Admiral Ken, why is this question, and by the way, the reasoning behind it, the reasoning behind it is so that they can enforce the uh, Fair Voting the Fair Voting Rights Act. Uh, this is a question that hasn't been on the census form since 1950s. Is, is this a bad move? I mean, why should this be uh, of concern? to the American electorate. I'm going to start with you, Admiral Ken. Well, first, the census is supposed to record everybody in the country, citizens and non-citizens alike. And, you know, there's no good reason other than, you know, political reasons why you would uh, put that question back in. And given, um, pardon me, given the pushback that I think we're going to see um, on gerrymandering as uh as uh, uh, evidenced by the, the election in, in Pennsylvania last week, uh, I think everybody's a little bit hypersensitive to it. And, you know, California, probably more so than any of the other states, um, especially are hypersensitive to, the, you know, to, to, to the things that, that the Trump administration does, uh, whether they're well-intended or not. And I, I'm not entirely sure that this is a well-intended uh, thing, thing that they try to do. Uh, Alan Moore, there are some that are saying that this is strictly a political move, that the ramifications of putting this question on the uh, census could mean undercounting in places like California, Arizona. And that could be a uh, – in places like California, that could take away one or two seats from possible Democrats in the base in, – in, in the Golden State – uh, is it fair to think that this might have been a political move to reassert their strength in Congress on the uh, West Coast? Well, you know, this is an interesting one, and and I and I've not done all the reading that I would like to do. I, I think there's a really fascinating constitutional question of uh, of what a, what what a census should be and what purpose it should serve. And here, here's here's the way to illustrate it. Let's suppose that you've got a a geographic area that's half non-citizens and half citizens, and is the same size as every other uh, congressional district in a place like California. Um, should it have the same representation in Washington 
as one that's, let's say, 100% citizens? I think that's an interesting question. I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a slam dunk answer that, that non-voters, non-eligible, sorry, non-eligible voters or children of, uh, 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 children of eligible voters or, or children born in America, should they count the same for the purposes of, of con- congressional districts and the size of congressional districts and how you apportion and, and move it around? No one says that they, these people aren't going to be counted. The question is, now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get a bunch of people, and this is where the politics comes in, who are saying, I'm not talking to some, some right. uh, I'm not going to fill out a census form. I'm not going to talk to a, to a person who knocks on my right. door, say, nope, I don't live here. You know, I'm just, uh, just a guest here. Uh, I'll, I'll leave the paperwork for the, uh, for the owner of the house. Um, and, and, uh, and, and there are potential uh, some some right. potential political ramifications. Although if you're not a citizen, you're but, not supposed to be able to vote right. anyway. It just Charlotte. has to do with with the with the counting and the distribution and 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 I think it's a fascinating question that that but doesn't Charlotte, have the right. obvious answer. Right, but Sharmila, going off of Alan's point, though, you know, a lot of Democrats are saying that this is that this is racist, this is biased. The census, for as long as the census has been around, has asked you of your ethnic origin. They need that to kind of get a good idea of the total makeup of the population of the United States. Why is asking if you are a citizen versus asking what ethnic origin you are? Why are those two mutually? Why are they mutually different? Because we have laws protecting you from discrimination against uh, your national origin and your ethnicity, right? We don't. The entire intent of including this question is to suppress the turnout by undocumented people, right? So that they're not represented in the census. So that the, the growing population of undocumented and you know of undocumented um, people living in this country is not fully captured in the census. And then uh, districts that are leaning more blue because they have these populations will be will be underrepresented and will or potentially could be gerrymandered to, you know, um, to allow them to be controlled by Republicans, right? That is the entire intent behind this question. And so that's – and in, when you look at why are things included, why are certain policies enacted, you always have to look at – even if they're not discriminatory on their face, you have to look back at intent. And the intent right. here is clearly, clearly discriminatory and clearly suppressive. So to answer you- your original question – the fact of your ethnicity doesn't affect, you know, in theory, it should not affect your legal status in this country and shouldn't affect the the rights and services that you receive. But your citizenship status does, and everyone knows that. Yeah, but Dan Littner, I, I talked to a couple of folks on the Hill today on the Republican side, and they say, look at it. If you look at it from a, 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 a neutral aspect, that this, by asking this question and finding out the population of uh, non-citizens in that area could allow the federal government to increase uh, HHS funding for special programs and grants. Could affect, uh, you, you know, it, it could it could affect the uh, different uh, legislative activities that could benefit those 
that live there that are not currently documented. Uh, it could provide additional grant opportunities for dreamers. Uh, is, do you not buy that aspect of it, that there could be some positive to asking the question? Dan Littner? I guess we Sorry, lost I was Dan. on mute. So, and I was all, yeah, I was all, no, I'm here. And uh, so I was also, I was rereading uh, the article of the Constitution that involving the, the census. And once you exclude the obviously discriminatory parts that are in the original content of it, and for those of our listeners who, who, who don't know this, uh, this is what the three-fifths clause is, and another item which I had completely forgotten about, it also entirely excludes Native Americans. Um, so that's what was in, in the clause to begin with. Um, as far as the intent of the clause, it's to count everyone else that's here. Um, and it says nothing about citizenship, nationality, or anything else. The census has grown over time to, uh, for data purposes to get lots of amazing information that, that demographers and uh, other people who are, get, go really into, into depth on those numbers in a lot of different ways. That said, knowing how many people who are not citizens are in any particular place, what's the upside on that? I mean, are we talking about the non-citizens who might be uh, H-1B visa holders that are in Silicon Valley? Um, I, I suspect not. I'm not quite certain what that would do to change any outcome. Uh, are we talking about non-citizens who uh, be here uh, for some other purpose, here, here uh, because they are... Uh, you know, fleeing tyrants that are actually here legally? Or are we talking about non-citizens who are trying to make a better life whose uh, citizenship status might be a little on the iffy side? And more importantly, what happens on the downstream side of this if the person answering the door or answering the mail happens to be an American citizen but a relative is not? Do we end up not counting that entire household? even though there, there may be citizens who are both legal voters, are, are we, right. we end up undercounting those folks as well? Um, right. If the intent is actually, to your point, to, to help out folks who are in need for you know, social services, in which case you can answer that question with income, not, by, not with citizenship. It, it's a, it, the intent is clear, and the intent is, is, is most certainly with malice. All right. So well, I'm gonna let that be. Uh, I'm gonna let that no, be the no, no, last no, word. Sir. We've only got, we've only got five, four more, five more minutes left on the okay, show but here, Alan. Just, we should come back to this at another time because in 2000, when when President Clinton was uh, was the president, um, there was in the long form, which about one in six households fill out right. questions right. about citizenship. So. Before we before we get all carried away here, some, um, yeah, this is not we, something we that's going away. Adam. Probably do some homework. We should. We might want to do a little homework um, and and say that okay, a voter suppression is the idea, 
let's analyze exactly right. how that would work. Well, let's this is let's voting this is a here. subject that it's we're Alan, this count, is a subject we're going to bring up in a future show, Alan. It, it's definitely yeah, going to come up. Fair enough. So, no, it's not voter suppression. It's voter delusion. Anyway, a guys, voter guys, power. Guys, I'm going to start muting people. I'm going to start muting people. Okay, look, got to close out the show here real quick. But since we do have, since we do have an associate producer and we do have to have her do some things, this is uh, the last. We have two minutes here to go through the uh, something that's become actually very popular. We've gotten compliments on it. Is the Trump administration death pool? Last week it was uh, well. Actually, let me go to her joining us again for her segment. Audrey Howerton, Audrey, our associate producer, who won last week's death pool? Sharmila, you won with uh, McMaster. Congratulations! Mm-hmm. What about Power. John? What about what about John Dowd? Well, nobody had him. I think he was he the is. week before. No, yeah. so, no, 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 no. He was he was a few hours before McMaster. Yeah, but do you, did and you have John Dowd? Junior's wife. Uh, wait, 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 wait hold down. on, hold on, hold on. Let's go back. Audrey, who did everybody pick last week? Alan, you had Shulkin. Justin, you had DeVos. And Ken, you had Ben Carson. Okay, so that being said, Sharmila won last week. So who who are we going to pick this week? I'm going to start with the winner this week. Sharmila, you get to pick first. Who's who's going to be the next to leave the administration this week? Ooh. Uh, I'm torn between two choices, but I will pick my second choice and go with Don McGahn. Don McGahn. Interesting pick. Okay. Alan Moore, to you. Yeah, the VA secretary, my, my backup pick for last week, which had to be my pick. So I'll stick with him. <laughs> Silken. Okay. Admiral Ken. Uh. So I, I had to go last last week too. So I, I'm I'm really no gonna... no no no. You're not last this week. You're not last this week. Uh, okay. All right. Well, uh, any man that throws his wife underneath the bus for picking out an expensive piece of office furniture deserves to be nominated two weeks in a row. I'm gonna go with Ben Carson again. Okay. <laughs> Dan Lipner. Uh, I'm with Alan. I, I I I don't see how the VA secretary survives. Uh, it's already picked. You got to pick somebody else. Yeah, see, I think we need to change uh, the rules. I don't think that that's fair to the last guys. Anyway, uh, then hopefully, that, hey, when when you moderate, you can pick the rules. <laughs> anyway, Dan Lipner. How did I? You don't have to play. I, I think, I think you don't have to play. Dan. Time is up. What's that? I think Baron Trump's time is up. Oh, you're picking. Oh, oh wow, wow, went there. Ah, uh, leave the kid alone. All right, I'm my my pick is Ty Cobb. Hey, he I think can Ty quit. Cobb. It doesn't have to be fired. That's true. That's true. That's that is true. I'm picking Ty Cobb. I yeah. think Ty Cobb's gonna be the next one to roll out of Team Trump. That being said, hey, one of the subjects we did not cover, but I didn't want to touch on it and only give it a couple of minutes. This whole Facebook issue. I want everybody to take a look at that because that is starting to get uh, some steam. This whole Cambridge Analytica. Facebook, and now we're starting to see 35 attorney, 35 state attorneys general have now filed a complaint with Facebook requiring uh, Facebook executives to answer. Uh, Congress has now said that they are calling Mark Zuckerberg onto the Hill, and Zuckerberg has stated that he will. This is a bigger issue than anybody thinks and could have tremendous impact on 
social media, the stock market, and uh, just IT governance as a whole. We're going to bring that up next week. Uh, make note of that, Audrey. Uh, but, yeah, Will I be? want everybody to think about that. That being said, uh, on behalf of uh, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken Carradine, Charlotte Chari, and the newly engaged Dan Lipner. Again, Dan, mazel tov to you and your future bride. We wish you 100 years of happiness. Thank you. Uh, we, I, I'm, you know, we're going forward to this. I, you know, I, I should have asked. She did say yes, right? <laughs> she did say yes, and uh, a- Alan was actually there to, uh, as evidence of, of of the fact that she did indeed uh, marry me. And she did agree, she lovely, Alan, under her own free will and accord. She is a lovely person, and uh, and I I couldn't get to her in time. Um, uh, to tell her what she might be uh, in for, but uh, I'm wishing them both the best. Yeah. She's Congratulations great. again, Dan. And to the future Mrs. Littner as well. Uh, that being said, and then of course, uh, thanks again to our associate producer, uh, Audrey Harrington. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week on the best political talk show you've never heard of. Hey, check out our new website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politic. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. Or you can email me your concerns, your fan mail at Justin or Justin at uh, backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Backroom Politics.